Good morning. Welcome to Park Community. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at this passage over the next two weeks. So this week we're going to kind of do a big picture assessment of the passage, and then next week we'll do a little more dive into it, and we'll look at some applications of the passage. And, and really what we're doing is kind of we're, we're in a spiritual war. Um, spiritual growth. Last week we asked the question, what does it mean to grow spiritually? What does spiritual growth look like? We asked that question last week in the end of Colossians chapter 2 as we were winding that down. The answer last week was to hold fast to Jesus the head. We can see that in chapter 2 verse 19. It says, holding fast to Jesus the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So we hold fast to Jesus the head. We hold fast to Jesus the substance, as chapter 2, verse 17 says. And then we hold fast to Jesus our sanctifier, as the end of chapter 2 was all about Jesus sanctifies us. He helps us to grow. Our battle for spiritual growth means clinging to Jesus Christ. But we can't lose sight of the fact that it is a battle. It's a daily battle, every single day. Those of you who are Christians, you know the daily struggle and the daily battle to grow spiritually. If you want to be more like Christ, there's this battle raging on, and chapter 3 really captures that battle for us. It's the battle between godly living and worldly living. The battle between living out God's characteristics and God's truth versus living out the ways of the world. And I'm, I'm learning that I think my son is kind of perceptive. I came down this morning from my study to grab some breakfast, and my son was sitting on the counter. First thing he said to me when I walked into the kitchen, he said, Dad, I'm glad your job isn't going to war. I don't know where he came. Well, it's because we were watching some movies recently with wars, and he doesn't want me to go to war and die. So I appreciate his love and concern for me. Um, but he said, Dad, I'm glad that your job isn't going to war. And of course, I had to turn it kind of theological on him. And I said, actually, buddy, my job is kind of like going to war. It, it is a spiritual battle. And Brittany's sitting there looking at me, and she's like, he's going to be afraid that you're going to die. And I'm like, I might die. I can't guarantee him that. And so that's kind of our relationship. And so I tried to unpack for him. I tried to explain to him that, actually, buddy, my job is going to war. And he said, when you go to church, you go to war. I said, well, it depends on the day. Um, but... We really, that, that is the life of a Christian, right? We have this daily battle. And, and I think what happens when we have a battle ahead of us or, a, or an impossible task, when there's war on the horizon, what do we do? How do you go into war? You have to assess the situation and then you have to come up with a plan of attack. We need a game plan. You can't go to war blindly. Now, I, I would illustrate this for you with some war tactics, but I'm not a war guru. I'm not an expert on war. So in order to illustrate this for you, I need to bring you back to my glory days, the 11th grade of high school. Um, this is when I first learned the way to kind of assess an attack. So my baseball team had just finished up our regular season, and we played well enough to make the playoffs um, because every team makes the playoffs. We, our record was actually 4-14. Four and 14. We were the worst team in our division, but we made the playoffs because... Praise the Lord, high schoolers, are, they're, they're kind to us, right? They want us all to feel like we matter. And so my team finished the regular season. We're the eighth seed out of eight teams. That means we're playing the best team, the first seed. And this is Duluth Marshall. I grew up in Grand Marais, Cook County High School, a small town up on Lake Superior. And so we're playing this bigger school from Duluth, Duluth Marshall, they were in our division. They had already beat us three times in the regular season. They had 10 run us or mercy ruled us all three times. 
So we're playing them the first round of playoffs. It's single, el single elimination. And I was pitching two of the times that we lost to them in the regular season. So 10 runs, you can imagine. I'm the one pitching. They're scoring tons of runs, hitting home runs, crushing us. And so we're heading towards the playoffs, and my coach, Coach Arley, sits down with the team, and he says, okay, I know what you guys are thinking. This is an impossible task. This, this, um, this challenge, this battle that we have is impossible. They're way better than us. They've beat us all three times. They've 10 run us all three times. Two of the times Andrew was pitching, and by the way, I'm going to have Andrew pitch this game. And the entire team rolls their eyes, and I'm, I'm like, what is going on here? And he said, guys, I think we can win. I, I have a plan. I've been watching this team for the three games that they killed us, and I've been watching Andrew's pitching style, and I know their hitters, and, and I've assessed the adversary. I've assessed the enemy. I know Duluth Marshall's weaknesses and their strengths. And I know what we have. I've assessed them. I've assessed us. And I have a game plan. I have a plan of attack. And so he sat us down and he walked through what they had, what we had, and how we could use our strengths against their weaknesses and theoretically win this game. So May 24th, 2001 rolls around and we drive down from Grand Marais down to Duluth on a bus and we go up to their home field, much bigger, much nicer, much prettier than ours. Their team is all, they're out on the field. They, they look amazing and intimidating and we're all like, okay, here we go. Coach gave us a game plan and we're going to stick to it. And what do you know? We won. We won. Yay! <laughs> we, we beat Duluth Marshall 5-2. to two. And it, it wasn't because we outmatched them in skill. It's because we had assessed the situation. We knew their weaknesses. We knew our strengths. And we attacked them accordingly. And I think Paul, the Apostle Paul, who writes the book of Colossians to the church in Colossia, and, and he's addressing some of their weaknesses. He's addressing some of the enemy's strengths. And he's giving them a battle plan. He's assessing the situation and he's saying, if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to overcome this impossible task, I have some insight in how you do this. I know how to defeat the enemy. And that's good news for each of us, isn't it? It's good news that we can actually overcome our adversary. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to assess the situation. We're going to, ask, we're going to assess who our adversary is. We're going to assess what our adversary has then we're going to assess who we are, and we're going to assess what we have. So big picture assessment today. And then next Sunday, we're going to go into our, our plan of attack. So next Sunday, we'll, we'll be very practical. How do we actually grow spiritually? Um, we know last Sunday, we said Jesus plus nothing equals um, everything, or Jesus plus something equals nothing. So we know it's all about Jesus, right? We're going to see that over and over and over again here in Colossians. It's all about Jesus, but is there some things that we can do after assessing the situation that, that God would give us some practical wisdom, some practical insights, a game plan for us to grow? And I believe he has that for us here. So first one, assessing who our adversary is. We have to keep in mind in the Christian life that we do have an adversary. We have someone, Satan, the, the accuser, who wants to see us fail. He is our adversary, and he has a host of helpers, demons and spirits, that want to see us fail in our spiritual growth, that want to see us tank, that want to see our holiness squelched. And, and here's, here's who the adversary is. So if we're assessing who the adversary is, we went through it the last couple weeks, but let's do a little review. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That's our adversary. 
the elemental spirits of the world. And then down in verse 20 of chapter 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, the adversary. In chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Our adversary is Satan and his crew lying to us. They come at us. That, that's who our adversary is. It's not another church with a different doctrine. It's not the culture and the world that we live in. It's not the political leaders. It's not our neighbors. It's not a certain movement that we may think has an undertone that would undermine the Bible, but it actually is the elemental spirits of the world. Think about this. When when sin entered the world, God created Adam and Eve in his image, no sin. They're in the garden, enjoying his perfect presence. And, and the serpent, the fallen one, comes to them and, and he starts lying to them. He says, do you really, do you really want to believe God? I mean, he, he gave you all of this, but there's that one tree that he forbid you to eat of its fruit. If you eat of that fruit, you will know the difference between good and evil. And so they start to question God, and they listen to the spirit of the world. A fallen angel, a deceiver, he lies to them, and they listen, and they believe, and they eat the fruit. Sin enters the world, and we say often at church here that we are sinners by nature and choice. We've inherited a sin nature from the first Adam. He sinned. We inherited that sin nature. All of mankind, since Adam and Eve, are born as sinners. We have a propensity to sin, and it's because we live in the elemental spirit of the world. The serpent came, and he destroyed what God had created as perfect. And so now we live underneath this cloud of the elemental spirit of the world. And then if you look at 3.5, what is earthly in you? It's, it's earthly. I mean, it came from this created fruit and from Satan, the fallen angel, speaking to us things that contradicted God's heavenly divine word. And so the elemental spirits of the world are earthly. They're demonic. They're not divine. It's Satan speaking to the first Adam rather than Jesus, the second Adam, giving us what's true and right and good. So the elemental spirits of the world. Um, Ephesians 6.12 says it this way, We fight not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Our adversary is Satan. And it's what he's about. It's the lies that he speaks to us. It's the, the wrong truth that he communicates to us. And here's what he has. Okay, so that's who it is. Satan and his demons, the elemental spirits of the world, the old man, what's earthly in us, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. That's our adversary. Also, verse 9, the old man, that's the first Adam, that's our sin nature, that's our inclination to sin. Paul's saying, know it, that's the adversary. Now, what does the adversary have? That's our next question. If that's who the adversary is, we need to assess what our adversary has. And, and Paul gives us, I think, three big things that our adversary has. Counterfeit teaching, counterfeit pleasure, and counterfeit image. Counterfeit teaching, we're not going to spend time here because we have the last couple weeks, but if you look back at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So counterfeit teaching, it's human philosophy, it's empty deceit, it's human tradition. And then as we talked about last week in chapter 2, verse 23, it's self-made religion. So the adversary has counterfeit teaching. 
the elemental spirits of the world, our adversary, he comes at us. One of his attack methods is to give us counterfeit teaching. It's to have the appearance of wisdom, as verse 23 says, but it's man-made religion, and it does, it, it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So our adversary, Satan, comes at us with counterfeit teaching. And then he comes at us with counterfeit pleasure. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, That's who the enemy is. Again, our earthly nature, influenced by the elemental spirits of the world. And what does he have? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Our adversary has counterfeit pleasure. He brings us these things that aren't inherently bad. Sex is a good gift from God. He gives it to us for our pleasure. Okay, and, and verse 5 is a lot about sex, isn't it? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Those are all kind of sexual terms. Impurity, passion, evil desire is in the realm of sexual immorality. The Greek word for sexual immorality, immorality there is porneia, which doesn't just mean pornography. It means all sex outside of God's context, which is a marriage between one man and one woman, biblically. And I'd love to talk more to you about that later on because I know that there's a lot of questions about that. But here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that our adversary comes at us with these things. Counterfeit pleasure. We seek pleasure through the things of the world. And, And he's saying sex isn't bad. Sex is great. It's a gift from God. But the world will lie to us. The world will say, the more sex we can have with the more people that we can have or however we want to have it, this will give us pleasure. In fact, um, I was working at a Cub Foods deli in Wilmer, Minnesota, my first year of college, making six ten an hour. Um, and I was, I was working in the deli, and there was this guy that worked at Cub who, um, he had a reputation of being the, the awesome guy who slept with all the women. That, that's just how it works, right? I mean, if, if you are seeking pleasure in sex, the more that you can have it, the better it is, right? And so in our store, this guy was kind of known as the guy who had it all, right? Because he had slept with, it was over like 100 women. And, um, and I was working hard to save myself for marriage because I believe that God's context for marriage is one man, God's context for sex is one man, one woman, in the covenant of marriage. And so I was working hard to save myself for that. And so I was a virgin, 19-year-old virgin, virgin working at the grocery store. And I was nervous about this guy finding out my secret, right? Like, he's going to think I'm weird. And he, he came over to the deli one day. And I had told one of my coworkers that I was saving myself for marriage. And I'm like, don't tell anyone. Whatever. We can, we can talk about the awkwardness of that later. Um, <laughs> This guy comes over to the deli and he said, hey, I, I heard that you're a virgin. And I'm, I'm like sweating. I'm like, oh no, what's he going to think of me? And he's like, that's so awesome. I, I wish I had what you had, what you have. It, he wasn't pleased. He was seeking it. He was seeking it. And by the eyes of the world, he had it all. And he's saying it, it doesn't fulfill. It doesn't have lasting pleasure. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And so, This battle here, what Paul is getting at, isn't to say that we can't enjoy pleasures in life. It's to say that we can't make the pleasures of life gods. 
God gives us sex. He gives us stuff. Look at the end of the verse here. It says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is wanting what someone else has. And so as people, I think we're tempted to seek pleasure through sex and through stuff, right? If you're not finding pleasure in sex, then buy a bunch of toys, buy a snowmobile, buy a boat, buy, I don't know, whatever your, whatever your enjoyable thing is, buy that. And, and seek pleasure. And if someone else has pleasure or they seem to have pleasure, you should get what they have. I mean, watch the commercials. It's all about having more. Chasing freedom. Chase the credit card company. Their slogan is chase freedom. So if you buy more things, you'll feel free. It's all about pleasure. And Paul is saying that God's gifts are good. We can enjoy them. We can enjoy sex and stuff. But they're not ultimate. They don't deeply and eternally satisfy us, do they? They leave us wanting more. That's why we always have to chase more. They just don't accomplish what we would want them to accomplish. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it in his great book, The Weight of Glory. He says, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. I love that. If we would consider all that scripture has for us, it would seem that God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased." That's what our adversary has. He has counterfeit pleasure. He says, chase money, chase fame, chase sex, chase stuff, acquire stuff, and you'll, you'll, you'll be pleased. And it's counterfeit. It's false. It's fake. And so we have to know that. We have to engage the daily battle knowing that our adversary is going to bring at us counterfeit pleasures. And then the last one is counterfeit image. And this is this is kind of seen in verses 8 through 11. Paul says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so our adversary has for us counterfeit image. Our adversary tries to get us to to divide into certain ethnic camps, right? Here in verse 11, Paul is saying that in the kingdom of God, the gospel makes us one, that we're not divided by our ethnic races or by our cultural distinctions. There's not Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Barbarian and Scythian are these nomadic people in this time that were uneducated and they were kind of like nomadic warriors. Um, I think they're like Wisconsinites or something. (laughs) We have a lot of, I I love Wisconsinites. Half of our leadership team is Wisconsinites, um, so that's a joke. Um, But he's saying that our adversary comes at us with a counterfeit image. Verse 10 tells us that in the gospel, we are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. We are created in the image of God, all of mankind, all people, all cultures, all languages, created in the image of mankind. But the adversary comes at us and tries to get us to divide into our 
into our cultural norms or our preferred ethnic groups and what's comfortable for us, and that infiltrates the church, doesn't it? We want to be around people who think the way that we think. We want to be around people who talk the way that we talk. We want to be around people who process the way that we process. And so he's saying, be careful of your adversary because your adversary divides. Your adversary is the one who brings anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Your adversary, verse 9, is the one who brings lies into your midst. Your adversary is the one who divides. And so if you're seeing those things, your adversary is attacking. That's the fruit of your adversary. That's not the fruit of the gospel. So Paul warns us, that's who our adversary is. It's the elemental spirits. It's Satan and his demons. What does he have for us? Counterfeit teaching, counterfeit pleasure, and a counterfeit image. Now we need to assess who we are. Okay, so we know who the enemy is and what the enemy has. What about us? Who are we? Well, verses 1 through 4 tells us, and it's, we've heard this over and over again for the last couple months, and we're going to hear it over and over again for, the, for as long as I'm your pastor. We are in Christ. Amen? We are new. We are transformed. Look at what Paul says. If then you have been raised with Christ. We're raised. We have a new life. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We, we are dead to sin. We have been raised with Christ. Verse 3, you have died. Verse 1, you have been raised. This is who we are. We are sons and daughters of the heavenly God. We are servants and saints of King Jesus. We are friends of Jesus. He calls us friends. We are brothers and sisters of one another. And we're sent out as neighbors and witnesses to the world. This is who we are. We're new in Christ. We have a new identity. The, the elemental spirits of the world no longer control us. Though sometimes we listen to their lies, and, and don't we? I mean, we seek counterfeit, te- we receive counterfeit teaching. Sometimes we believe it. We often chase counterfeit pleasure. And we oftentimes fall into counterfeit image camps, and, and we we degrade the image of God in others. Do we not? We do. We're guilty. That's why every Sunday, Ben has some type of repentance prayer. Thank you, Ben. You're a great pastor. He, 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 if you notice this, he, he prays and says, God, we do this. We don't do this. We sin. Forgive us. We, we fall into this. We actually receive what our adversary has for us, even though, though we know we shouldn't. And so here, Paul is over and over again reminding us that that's not you. That's not you. The elemental spirits of the world are lying at you and you're receiving some of their lies, but spit it back out and take some good substance. Dwell on Jesus. Partake in Jesus. Receive Jesus. Believe Jesus. For in him you are made new. You don't need what the world has to offer in the way of teaching pleasure or image because you have solid, sound teaching here in the gospel, and all truth is, truth is God's truth, so this doesn't mean that we can't listen to secular people. There's a lot that we can learn, but anything that's true that comes from anyone can be filtered through God's word and can be found and proven here in God's word. God's word is like a filter from which we understand what is true and right and noble and good. And so we, when we assess who we are, the first thing to notice is that we are in Christ, 
We've been made new. Though we struggle with sin, God looks at us and he sees Jesus. Though I had been 10 run two times by Marshall, my coach looked at me and he said, he's, he's got some stuff that I believe in. I, I think, and, and this, this breaks down, this analogy breaks down a little bit, but he said, my coach said, okay, I think Andrew can actually beat Marshall with the help of the team, and if he does this, and he told me, he's like, hey, to this hitter do these things, and to this hitter do these things, and, and he believed in me. He just, that was so empowering. And really, when we assess who we are, it's not that God believes in our raw potential and what we have to offer, but he looks at us and he sees Jesus. He sees us through the eyes of Jesus. He says, you are my sons and my daughters. I love you and I'm with you and I'm sending you into that battlefield with my strength and you can overcome. I mean, it's a confidence builder. God, the creator of the, heaven and, of the heavens and the earth is saying, you got this because I'm with you. When we assess who we are, we understand that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is living in us, the hope of glory dwelling in us. We can overcome. The next thing we see when we assess who we are is, um, okay, so that's who we are, assessing what we have. Okay, so after we assess who we are, we're in Christ, we're made new, we're called sons and daughters of God. Now we need to assess what we have. What we have is true teaching. We have the gospel. We don't need to give in to counterfeit teaching. We have true teaching. That's why we study the Bible here at Park Community. That's why we open it, because we have the truth. The truth overcomes all things. I mean, there's a reason why the Bible has been the bestseller on, in all cultures over the course of history. And in certain cultures, it's banned, right? They... they, they um, in certain cultures, they have banned the Bible. Yet the Bible still makes it in because people smuggle the Bible. If you want to live a radical life, become a Bible smuggler. Doesn't that sound cool? Um, we have God's truth. We also have pleasures evermore. So if the world throws at us counterfeit teaching, we have true teaching. We have God's truth. We have God's foundation. And if the world throws at us counterfeit pleasures, we need to know that we have pleasures evermore. Here's, here's how we see this. Okay, in verses 1 through 4, 1 through 3, um, I'm going to do a little bit of math with you. I've wrestled with this verse for years, and finally just this week it hit me so clearly, the power of what's happening here in these verses. Okay, look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I've always wondered, what, the, what does that mean? that my life is hidden with Christ in God. I understand the death part because that's a sign of our baptism. We've talked about that. There's a lot of scripture that talks about what it means to die to sin and to die in Christ and to be raised with him. But what does it mean to have my life hidden with Christ in God? For I've died and my life is hidden with Christ. What does that mean? And this week I started thinking about hide and seek. What do you do when you play hide and seek? Somebody hides and then what, do the other, what does the other person do? They seek them. So I started thinking, okay, if my life is hidden with Christ in God, then that means I need to find Christ. Where is Christ? He's hidden. I need to find Christ. Look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus is up above in heaven at the right hand of God. My life is hidden with Jesus. So 
Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 plus Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 means that my life is hidden with Christ in God in the heavenly places. Jesus is with God in his presence at his right hand and my life is hidden there with him right now currently. It means God is enjoying my fellowship and presence through his son Jesus there and I'm still going about this daily battle and struggle but as we sang it this morning, Jesus has won the war. We can go bravely into battle but Jesus has won the war. Amen? That was the first song that we sang. But, okay, so 3 plus 1, verse 3 plus verse 1, equals pleasures evermore. Here's what I mean by that. If my life is hidden with Christ in God, and if Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies, look at Psalm 16, verse 11. This tells us what is in that place. Psalm 16:11. It's on page 454 in the Pew Bible. Okay. You ready for it? It's going to be great. You have you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen? So if our life is hidden with Christ in God and Christ is at the right hand of God the Father where there are pleasures evermore, that means we have pleasures evermore here and now. Why in the world are we settling for the things of the world? Why in the world are we making sex and stuff gods rather than letting God be God, finding our ultimate pleasure and joy in him and pursuing sex and stuff as, as a gift from God rather than an idol, rather than a God replacement? We have pleasures forevermore. We have eternal pleasure. We have pleasure that never ends in God the Father. Our life is hidden with Christ in God where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and there our life is wrapped up into that. We have pleasures forevermore in Jesus the Son and God the Father through the power of his Spirit. Amen? A couple other things that we have as we assess what we have. So we have true teaching. We have true pleasure. We have, we have true image bearing. I mean, that, that's what's... That's what he's getting at here in 9 through 11 of chapter 3. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. So we put off the old man in the way that it divides into, into cultures, into ethnicities, with its practices. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image after, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We, created it, we are created in the image of God. And so we have a true unity amidst diversity. We can have different ethnic, ethnicities represented, different races represented, and we are one in Christ. We are unified. Look at how Paul goes on, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So Minnesotans and Wisconsinites can fellowship together. Amen. And then next week we'll dig a little bit more into this, but look at verse 11. This is also what we have. If we are in Christ, if we're made new, if we're transformed, we have what verse 12 tells us to put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's who we are. God sees us as holy and beloved. Again, the reminder of the gospel. We assess who we are. We are holy and beloved. And what do we have? Because we're holy and beloved, we have compassion. 
We have kindness. We have humility. We have meekness. We have patience. We have the ability to bear with one another. And if we have complaint against each other, we have the ability to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us. And above all of these, we can put on love because we are loved. We've received love. Verse 15, and and we can be a people of peace because we understand and we have and we've received Christ, the author of peace. And so we have the characteristics of these next verses. We already have that. That's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so if you want to grow as a compassionate person, a kind person, a humble person, a meek person, a patient person, somebody who can bear with others, lean into Jesus and allow his power, his characteristics, his grace, his work to be worked out in you. And then finally, the last thing that we have, we have to go back up to verse 4 for this one, is coming glory. Assessing what we have. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. And so the Christian life can often be boiled down into three theological categories. One is justification. That's the assessing who we are, that we are made new. We are justified by Jesus, okay? That's kind of verse one there. You've, you've been raised with Christ in verse three. You're dead to your sin. We've been justified. Sanctification is growing in Christ's likeness. It's becoming more like Jesus. That's what we're really working on here. That's what Paul is trying to work out in us. How do we, what's our game plan? How do we, what's our game plan for spiritual growth? And then the last one is glorification. That's when Jesus returns or calls us home, we are glorified. It says when Christ, who is your life, that's now. He won't be our life then. He is our life now. When Christ, who is your life, appears You will then be with him in glory. You will be glorified. All tears, all suffering, all pain, all death will be no more. Behold, I am making all things new. And so there is a coming day when we will be made new, when we will be glorified with Christ, we'll be with him forever. Actually, to just close out, let's look at Let's look at Revelation 21 because this is a beautiful picture of glorification. Revelation chapter 21. This is part of assessing what we have. This is the future that we are headed for, a glorified future. And here's what that future looks like. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, it's on page 1041. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. And the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Amen.
That's the glorified future that we are moving towards. That's what we have. We have all these good things in Christ, true teaching, true pleasure, unending pleasure, true identity as, as human beings created by a holy God in the image of a holy God that are, that are broken and we find this identity restored in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And then we're moving towards this glorified future where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, and death shall be no more because God will be with his people. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. God, I, I pray that you would forgive us for all the things that we need to be forgiven for, and, and we, we thank you that you have and that you do, that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, that we would receive forgiveness, that we would be forgiven. And so we receive you now, Jesus. We believe that your life was the perfect life lived that we can't live, that your death was the sacrificial death in our place for our sins, for our shortcomings, for us missing the mark, for us believing counterfeit teachings, for us falling for counterfeit pleasures, and for us, us living in counterfeit images. We believe that you've forgiven us for that, for the past, for the present, and for the future things that we will fail at. And so we receive your forgiveness, we receive you, and I pray that you would empower us now to live with true teaching and true pleasure and true image. We pray that you, Jesus, would restore in us the hope of glory. And I pray that we would see ourselves as hidden with Christ, seated at the right hand of God, having access to pleasures forevermore. We love you, Jesus. Amen.